Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Mark Devine. Mark is the founder and CEO of SealFit and NavySeals.com. He's also the creator of the Unbeatable Mind Academy, a mental and physical strength building program that specializes in helping individuals and businesses maximize their productivity. He's the author of three books, Unbeatable Mind, The Way of the Seal, and Eight Weeks to Seal Fit, all available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it, Chris. So can you tell me a little about your background, how you got into the things that you're doing? Because you've done some really special things, and you're doing some really special things. Yeah, thanks. You know, just like a lot of folks, it's kind of long and circuitous, but I'll try to keep it short, Chris. But, uh, you know, I was in Navy SEAL for 20 years. I retired in 2011 as a commander. And, uh, uh, you know, I did some pretty neat things during that time, but I think it's, it's interesting to, um, to kind of start to, to give some guys an idea of how I even got into that, because it, it was not a typical path. It's not like I, you know, decided at 17 that I wanted to be in the, in the military and just, you know, wound my way into the SEALs. So, you know, I'm from a small town in upstate New York, um, you know, kind of a rural area, and it didn't do a whole lot up there. Um, there wasn't a whole lot to do. And so, you know, kind of by default, I really got into endurance sports and, and spent a lot of time outdoors and um, spent a lot of time in the water uh, at a lake house we had during the summer. So I became a, a fairly effective swimmer and water skier and, you know, just running around the mountains was very natural for me. And that, that really helped me later on, you know, um, to essentially as I decided to become a SEAL to, um, you know, understand myself and, you know, be comfortable being alone and, and really understanding how to uh, suffer in silence, you know what I mean? Because endurance training and spending time on 18, 20 mile, you know, hikes with 85 to 100 pounds on your back, you know, really, really it's good training for that type of stuff. But anyways, I, you know, I didn't think of the military as a career until I was 25. I went off to college, went to uh, Colgate University where I was recruited to swim competitively and, you know, I did kind of the standard um, economics degree where I was planning on being uh, in business and then potentially going back to the family business in upstate New York. And uh, during college, I had another neat experience with my swim coach who was kind of on the cutting edge of um, sports psychology and testing uh, concepts and visualization and using visualization to enhance performance. And so I had, you know, some neat training there that um, also kind of tied to me getting into the seals, which I'll explain about later on when we, you know, one of your questions you ask. And so anyways, I followed the herd down to New York after graduation. I got a job with a uh, public accounting firm named Coopers & Libran, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. And they sent me to NYU to get my MBA. And, I, you know, within uh, two years I had that and then I passed the CPA exam. So I became a certified public accountant. And interestingly enough, you know, I, I was a complete misfit in that field. I mean, I, I really just did not fit at all. I didn't like it, you know, and I, I really struggled to fit in. And I just didn't like the type of people I was working around. Um, I didn't, you know, I saw a lot of greed. I saw a lot of, um, you know, people just, what I thought were just kind of withering away, you know, in just trying to climb the corporate ladder and really focused on the material things as opposed to, you know, more of the um, depth of character things that I had been used to in my youth, you know, where I was running around the mountains and, and you know, with really cool people who were really authentic and not so much concerned about making millions of dollars. So anyways, all that kind of came back to me, and um, I had started, you know, the link between me and the SEALs, I started a martial arts program, and, you know, that really started to open me up to, um, 
you know, a whole new sense of training and what's possible. And, you know, through this labyrinthine process um, that I now teach, a much more refined version of it, of course, you know, I, I decided uh, or I started to redefine, you know, who I was and what I was meant to do in my life. And then I developed the courage to, um, to kind of make a leap. And so I left corporate America, all my degrees, all the, you know, the, the high paying job, literally just shelved it and um, went off to, walked off to Canada school to um, become a Navy officer and then went through SEAL training. And uh, that was in 1990. And so, you know, without going into too many more details about my SEAL experience, later on, one of the things that, you know, I wanted to really do was to help others really learn how to get control of the directionality of their life, to get control of their bodies and their minds and their emotions, and to really tap in, you know, to their, their full potential, their full power. And some of these things that I had learned early on, through my visualization and through my martial arts and meditation and, you know, mental control training that I developed through the martial arts and through the SEALs, I wanted to really give it back to people and to teach them. And so that's, that's kind of what's led me to where I am today, where I'm, I'm teaching mental toughness and, and resiliency, you know, what you could call grit. And I'm, I've got it, you know, through a really intense physical training program called SEAL Fit and also a, you know, a less arduous but um, more of an internal uh, mental training program called Unbeatable Mind, and it's kind of what I've written about in the books. So that's a long-winded kind of way of saying that I, you know, I, it all started, you know, back when I was a kid running around the Adirondacks, um, and that, that was kind of a formative experience for me, and that and my swim coach and my uh, martial arts training that, that led me to where I am today. That's awesome. We, I want to talk about all your books, but let's kind of start. I don't know if we're actually going to be able to do that, but uh, let's start with The Unbeatable Mind. Um, sure. can, can you tell me what motivated you to create The Unbeatable Mind? And, sure. And just a little bit about some of the ideas that you talk about in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the fundamental principle, and I've already alluded to it, is that we are capable of at least 20 times more than we think we are or we're led to believe that we are as human beings. And, you know, again, this is something that I learned um, through my, my field, Navy SEAL experience and also, you know, to, to uh, some extent through my martial arts training and even yoga. Um, so I'm a 25-year martial artist. I'm a, uh, about an 18-year yoga practitioner and teacher, and I've got my own yoga program called Warrior Yoga. And, you know, all that layered over my Navy SEAL experience, which was incredibly powerful for proving this idea to us as SEALs that we were capable of 20 times more than we than our limiting beliefs and our self-concept and what society thought, right, we were capable of. And we went out and proved it. And we proved it during Hell Week in, in our earliest part of our training, which was only seven weeks into our training. You know, we had to essentially train from Sunday till the following Friday with no sleep, around the clock, no, no stops, no sleep, just nonstop training. And that, that single event, you know, was earth-shattering for me. It was a, a radical paradigm shift in my life, you know, there was like before Hell Week and then life after Hell Week. And the major difference was this, this just sense of what I was capable of, my physical and mental potential that was bottled up inside me and that I was able to unleash in that, in that week was enormous. So that, that's really the, 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 probably the first underlying principle of Unbeatable Mind is this understanding and awareness and acceptance or buy-in to this idea that we're capable of so much more. And then, then it's about um, 
how do you, you know how do you unlock that potential? And so the whole program goes through uh, both powerful concepts for living, you know, drawn from the warrior tradition that help align you for for greater potential and greater performance, as well as you know very specific tactics for forging mental toughness and emotional resiliency, and how to um, you know turn from just being uh, some you know someone who's committed to your personal self mastery self fulfillment to someone who's deeply deeply committed to the team's you know your team's self mastery and your team's you know commitment and accomplishment of the mission. So that's really what it's about. It's, ex and it's extremely effective, and it is kind of a, the operating system of what I teach interlaced with the physical training at my SEALSET academies. I have these immersion training events, Chris, where people come and live with me for you know, up to um, you know, three weeks at a time, anywhere from three days to three weeks, and they train for 15 to 16 hours a day. And about half of that is hard physical training, you know, running and rucking and swimming and, you know, all the, the um, functional fitness and interval training and CrossFit and log PT and grinder PT. And the other half is um, inner development. You know, it's, it's, um, it's meditation, concentration, breath control, yoga, visualization, and, um, you know, silence practices and journaling and, and, you know, classes on leadership and mental toughness and all that. And so Unbeatable Mind, that's how I developed Unbeatable Mind, was kind of through testing it on, you know, testing these inner development techniques on special ops candidates and, and others who were willing to step up to that level of work and getting feedback and tweaking it and, you know, really finding out what worked and what didn't and then kind of you know, systematizing it into this training program. Pretty cool. It's kind of my life's work and it's something I'm really passionate about. In fact, the, the book, The Way of the Seal, really is kind of a, a very similar, I mean, taking some of the same tools and techniques, but really applying it to um, leadership and, in particular, business leaders. So the idea is that, you know, anybody can, can start to use some of these principles and techniques and apply them, you know, to make themselves more effective in their professional career and in their lives, you know. So you don't have to be an athlete or a, a warrior for these principles to be effective or useful for you. Oh, this is wonderful. Hey, you talked about a lot of different concepts. I think you mentioned perseverance, but you definitely talked about resilience, talked about personal mastery, group mastery, and a bunch of other words that uh, started getting me excited. If, if somebody's trying to, like in the first kind of stages of pulling their life together, or maybe they're kind of flowing through life and they want to unlock that 20x potential that you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, what are some kind of specific things that they could do or tweaks that they could change, life hacks, whatever, strategies. Um, what are some things that they can do in order to tap into that potential? Well, at, at first of all, it's, uh, there is no hack to developing this type of um, mastery and this type of high level of performance. And, you know, I, I, um, I'm a good friend of a bunch of the, the hacker and the, the quantified self folks. And, and what I'll tell you is that you may get uh, a blip in performance uh, with a hack, but um, what it takes to change and to develop as a human being is just a daily effort, right? It's, it's a, a commitment to a radical commitment to um, unleashing your potential, to developing yourself at, to your highest levels. And that takes more than, you know, reading a book or attending occasional, you know, motivational seminar or hearing someone speak. I mean, it, it takes training. And so the very first step is to acknowledge that 
you must take control over your destiny and rather than let life happen to you. And when you take control, that means you got to learn the skills, develop the skills for how to uh, get control back over your life, over every aspect of your life. And, th- and that's what I teach in my training, my unbeatable mind and, and that seal fit, is essentially, you know, once you've committed, you've accepted that you're capable of a lot more and, you, and you're willing to take, you know, radical or massive action, then that, that brings courage, right? So commitment leads to courage. Courage doesn't mean you've mastered it, and courage doesn't mean that you're confident, or courage doesn't mean even that you're competent in anything. It just means that you've, you've committed to it, and so now you've taken a deep breath, and, you know, you're, you're scared shitless, and you kind of jump in, you know, uh, you know and, and you don't know if it's ankle deep or 20 feet over your head. And so, but then the idea is that you just commit to doing something every day, every day to improve yourself, even if it's just by 0.1% every day. And the SEALs, we call it earning your trident every day. The trident is the Navy SEAL insignia that we wear. And so what that means is to, A, do something to improve yourself every day, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, in all these areas, and I'll talk about later, as well as do something to earn the trust and respect of your team every day. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, the second step. First is to commit. The second is to um, then train, do something to train every day. And the actual what to do to train, that's, you know, that's what we teach, and those are some of the, the tactics, right? But the, these first two are really critical. And those are really, that's about choice, you know, about getting control. And then, um, and then the training plan, uh, you know, again, we don't have time really to get into it here on a podcast, but the training plan includes physical training, it includes some mental training. It includes, um, you know, breath control for physiological and, you know, mental alignment or mental, you know, kind of uh, concentration. It includes visualization. Um, and it includes some emotional development, emotional awareness and resiliency type um, drills. And um, expanding your awareness and your intuition and connecting with, you know, what I call your, your warrior spirit, your Kokoro spirit. That's a word I use for some of my trainings. Kokoro means to merge your heart and your mind and your actions. So really kind of connecting with your deeper sense of self and who you are and, and what direction you're meant to take in life, right? So those are, you know, those are things that we don't just talk about platitudinously or, you know, uh, listen to others speak about or wonder about, but we actively train those in what I call an integrated training model, where we integrate these different capacities that we have as human beings. And so uh, this kind of ties into the unbeatable mind philosophy is that what I've noted and what I've learned and, and what I've experienced through my own training and through the training of, you know, a couple thousand folks over the last eight years is that when you train in this integrated fashion, day in and day out, where you're hitting up the physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, spiritual intelligences that we have, that all of us possess, then we really start to unlock an accelerated development. And then kind of the next part of it is in order to really um, burn the development into our being so that it's permanent as opposed to a fleeting experience, then we challenge ourselves. As you know, SEALs are great at challenging themselves. Hell Week example I gave you earlier is just one example. So seal fit and undo mind, uh, what, we, what we do is we encourage or even require our members to find challenges that are going to take them so far out of their comfort zone that they're required to really tap into all these skills at a deeper level and to 
take the learning that they've been doing on the day-to-day training and put it to use in a significant challenge. You know, and examples of uh, challenges that some of our folks have taken. Uh, one guy, Jordy Young, just took an expedition up to the um, up to the magnetic North Pole, as an example. Another classic one is uh, we have a 50-hour nonstop training event called Kokoro Camp. So a lot of po- folks put that on their schedule nine months or a year out, and they train to come to Kokoro Camp, and that's our version of Hell Week. And it's just an extraordinary experience, and it's, it's probably the hardest training in the world outside of the actual Navy SEALs. And we have folks, you know, all the way to you know, 60 years old who, who challenge and, and go for it. And most people, you know, when they train for it, um, they make it because our objective is to really help them, you know, with the strategies and tools to, sur- you know, not just survive it, but to thrive in that challenging environment. I mean, there's so much stuff that I love here. One thing I've learned by some of the most successful people that I've had the pleasure of being around is most of them work their ass off. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. They want to cheat their way through the system and they don't realize that in order to get into shape, like the way that you get into shape is by consistently working out. I mean, you have to make sure that your body has rest and you need to make sure that you have the the right nutrients entering your systems, your system, uh, but it's by consistently doing it. The way that you get smarter or you get into a good school, I mean, people always like to revert back, oh, their parents were connected, whatever. The way that you get to that point where you, you do, you're in high school, you do well on the SATs uh, or whatever standardized tests and, and you have the rest of your packaging together is through consistent hard work. And um, and so I really like that message. You know, there's a key distinction here too, though, is that I think we've been taught that hard work um, isn't fun. And it's quite the opposite. You know, the most successful people, uh, two things happen, you know, one of two things happen. Either they utterly love what they do because they're completely aligned and they're passionate about it. And so the work that other people see as work, the long hours and, you know, what other people would consider as just slaving away is absolutely extremely enjoyable. And, they, you know, these people find joy in that and, and real meaning in the accomplishments and in the building, the things that they're building. You know, the entrepreneurs love building things, as you're aware, and I'm, I'm certainly aware of. And, you know, it's, it, I just absolutely love coming to my work every day. I love my training. You know, I'll train two to three hours a day of just bone-crushing workouts, and it's a blast. I mean, I absolutely love it. And I love, you know, building my business. And so that's one way. And the other way is, you know, even if you don't, initially love it, you start to love the uh, rewards that the hard work brings. And so that then brings this great sense of peace of mind and uh, an internal happiness, right? So you're not focused that all that hard work isn't focused on just getting, you know, a new car or a bigger house. It's deeply intrinsically focused on the rewards, the internal rewards that you experience through your growth uh, through the team, you know, through your expanding sense of self as you continue to develop the skills, wisdom, and knowledge, you know, that that hard work, you know, requires. And so ultimately, um, you're right, hard work is the secret to success, right? But it's passionate hard work. It's, you know, it's either being deeply in love with what you do or finding that love through the work in terms of the intrinsic um, motivation for the experience itself. 
even as we're talking, I've written three pages of notes and one of the, the, it's funny that you said enjoy because about midway through the first page, I was writing the notes on commitment leads to courage, courage leads to commitment to do something every day and kind of listed some of the different areas that you talked about and wrote notes about the idea of developing physical, emotional, and spiritual components of ourselves in big letters. I wrote enjoy because that was actually something I wanted to comment on. It is hard work and, but it is something either you'll end up either enjoying doing or you'll learn to enjoy because you enjoy the benefits. I think that's... Well, frankly, you won't do it. And, and yeah. that's why so many people fall off of things. You know, they try one thing and then, they, you know, move on to another. Part of that's our, you know, distraction society. And part of it is that they really don't take time, enough time to develop a passion for it. And they're focused on the wrong things. They're looking for... The same thing with fitness, right? And you probably had some other fitness folks on and like... You know, people say, well, how do I, I want to lose weight. And I said, great. Well, if your goal is to lose weight, you're focused on the wrong thing, you know, because that's just an ex, you know, external measure of your health. Well, once you focus on, you know, getting uh, as radically fit and healthy as you can in a year, and in order to do that, I would say probably a great way to start is to go to commit to attending, you know, um, let's say th- three times a week times 52 weeks, so commit to attending 150 CrossFit training sessions in one year. So all you got to do is track yourself to make sure you're hitting those up three times a week. If, if one week you hit the two, the next week you hit four. You know what I mean? If, if you hit four in one week, then maybe you give yourself a break the following week and just hit two. But it's not that hard. You hit 150 well-coached CrossFit training sessions in a year, and you will lose all the weight that you need to. You'll gain all the, the lean muscle mass that your body wants or needs. Your, all your health indicators will become radically healthy that your doctor will think that you've just you know, gone off the deep end in terms of your health and fitness. And all you're doing is training three times a week. You're committing to that. And that's that you know, daily effort. And this is not even daily. It's three times a week. Now, in the off days, you're going to do something healthy for yourself, right? Maybe do some yoga, take a walk, go for a swim, uh, meditate, breathe, you know, eat well. And, you know, right there in that short little, you know, statement I just made, you've got the recipe for optimal health and happiness, you know, and life, you know, longevity, basically. That's great. You've said the word commitment over and over and over. And one thing that you said I really liked, you said commitment leads to courage. And you made a comment that you get into something and you don't know what the hell you're doing. And this, I feel like, happens so often because with men especially, and I'm sure it's true with women, but I know it's true of the listeners who are listening to this, that they get nervous, they have fears, they have anxieties that they're fighting against. And those things are inhibiting in them. And so what they'll do is they'll try to plan for the perfect situation prior to going into it. And so I'm not not necessarily talking about training. I'm talking about mental preparation. They'll plan for all these scenarios that oftentimes will never come up. Can you give me some insights into this? Well, that's such a classic issue. People get stuck in analysis paralysis or you know, plan, they get frozen in planning. And, and so, you know, in the SEALs, we, we were very cautious of this. And so we have this, uh, this method of really hasty planning where we're really, we're just seeking an 80% solution so we can get out the door. Because we understand that no plan survives contact with the enemy. As soon as we hit the, you know, resistance and the bullets start flying, our plan was going to, it's going to fall apart. So we need a plan that's good enough to get us out the door and moving in the right direction so that we can learn, 
you know, what the true direction is that we need to go. And then we head off in that new direction once we get the feedback, and then, you know, we get more resistance and we have to learn again, and then we, you know, sh you know shift fire, do a course correction, then we head off in a new direction. And so we're constantly tightening up the plan as we go. But by having a hasty plan with an 80% solution, it's kind of like the 80-20 Pareto principle, you know, we just need to focus on those 20% of things that are going to get us 80% of the way, and then we go, right? Three, two, one, go. And, you know, that develops momentum, and, and it's like breaking down the goal into smaller little goals, which is one of our key, you know, tenets for mental toughness. You, you're much more likely to commit to something if it's just, if it's smaller, if it's a bite-sized chunk. So you commit to that, you chew it off, and then while you're chewing, you learn, you know, because you get to some of that resistance, you learn what's the next step, and so then you commit to that next step. And again, it's a small, achievable goal. You bite that off, and so you keep on biting off these little bites, pretty soon you realize that, you know, you've eaten, almost eaten the whole elephant. The, the goal is, the big goal, the mission is almost completely accomplished. But, you know, in the beginning, you didn't know whether to start at the head or the tail. You just started taking bites. <laughs> so that's kind of a, a silly metaphor, but that, that's the principle, you know. And so when you commit to just getting out the door and taking action, you know, that, that part right there is where a lot of people get stuck because of the fear. And so, you know, this is important for everyone to understand. You can never eradicate fear. Fear is always going to be with you. It's just part of human nature. It's, it's, it's hardwired into us, you know, for very good reasons to, to help us avoid danger and to, um, you know, to survive, right? And so fear isn't bad. But um, once you kind of understand fear and you commit to leaning into whatever it is that you're fearful of, and taking some of those small actions, those small bites, so now you can learn about it, you can dance with it, you can start to develop the skills and some of the competency to um, navigate through the challenge that you fear. That leads to greater confidence. As the confidence builds, you know, you build, you build momentum, and then you're able to handle the situation more effectively, you know, every time you get close to it until you essentially are able to dominate it. So, you know, fear is good. Fear tells you that you're alive. And you can transmute that fear into like a real focused determination just to, to solve this next problem, to get through, you know, the next challenge, to, you know, to um, get out the door and get busy. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. This is along the same lines of, I guess, what you were saying. I think oftentimes 
when people commit to putting themselves out there and going after a specific goal and putting themselves into uncomfortable situations while they're pursuing that goal, as you said, the eating these small bites, they focus on these small problems and they learn to solve it. And then later on, they'll learn to solve another problem then they'll learn to solve another problem. And then eventually they solve enough of these problems that they can kind of wing it and adapt. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, it's kind of like in one of my classes, I talk about the, the learning process, and it starts out where we're, we have this uh, unconscious incompetence towards something, right? It means essentially ignorance, right? You really don't even know enough about something to, to have any idea that you're a complete ignoramus at it. You know, and I see this a lot when people, a lot of people come into my training thinking that they're, you know, that they're really fit because they've been doing 50 push-ups a day in their barn or something like that. And they don't make it an hour in my training. I mean, it's, the training that we do is just balls to the wall, and it's extraordinarily challenging, and, but it's, you know, it's rewarding, and anyone can do it, but you've got to train properly to even do the training, if that makes any sense. You know, it's like you don't step into graduate school to work in your Ph.D. if you haven't gone to high school yet, unless you're some sort of genius, you know. So that's that unconscious confidence stage you have to it's like awareness right boom all of a sudden you, you you get hit by the bus and you're aware that holy shit i don't even know what i don't know and so i better start back at the crawl stage right and so that leads to conscious incompetence meaning all of a sudden i'm aware i'm grossly I'm aware because it's, it's i just had a painful experience you know in my hero's journey i got set back quite a bit and now i'm conscious that i'm incompetent in this arena that i have an interest in and so i better get busy developing some skills learning all i can finding a mentor or a good coach to help me you know going to seminars attending some training you know ratcheting up my daily effort right and then over time slowly and it's going to be different for everyone based upon your unique skills and attributes as a human you start to develop the you know the competencies that will lead to greater and greater success, kind of like we were just talking about. And you just get out there and you try things and you overcome your fears and you, you know, you develop momentum. And then that leads to this stage of conscious competence, meaning where all of a sudden you are, you are competent and you're aware of it. But this is still not mastery, Chris, because in conscious competence stage, you, you know, when you perform the task, you still are, are, um, you're still thinking about it. You're thinking about the task. You're thinking about what my next move should be. The, it's not flowing out of you in a state of, you know, uh, flow or, or mastery, right? And so that, then, you know, you have to, like Gladwell says, just, says, just train in that competence and, and work with that competence until you develop this, you know, just real innate sense of all the different nuances of, of how it gets done naturally, right, without the conscious thought. And that's when you are able to then act with what the Japanese would call shibumi, which is effortless perfection. And the actions can just flow out of you in mastery. That's the stage of unconscious competence. So those are the four kind of levels of development. And, you know, it could be a lifetime or, you know, you could have a radically immersive experience where you could develop it much quicker. One, one example of that is in my, um, when I was in the early in my SEAL career, I think I've been training as a SEAL for maybe three or four years, I was invited to attend a, a hand-to-hand uh, combat instructor course called SCARS, Special Combat Aggressive Reactionary System. It's amazing. We essentially went to this uh, remote location and we trained, we fought for 10 hours a day for 30 days straight, you know, with a break for lunch and, you know, just 
some downtime where, where the instructors would show a new skill and then we'd go fight with that skill and then they'd show a new skill and then we'd go fight with that skill and then we'd do group fighting and then we'd do fighting on the sand berms and fighting in the ocean and it was just unbelievably intense. And so what I experienced was I went from, you know, the stage of, I wasn't unconscious incompetent because I had already done some of this training, so I was, I was conscious of my incompetent competence, but I knew that I could be competent. So I was somewhere in, in, that, in that early stage. But what happened is by, by the time we got into like the second week, heading into the third week, I was definitely very, very confident and very conscious of that. And so I still had to think through my actions. You know, I still had to visualize the, the uh, fight before it happened and all that. But at about day 23, 24, something like that, there was a distinct shift from conscious competence to unconscious competence where we were fighting and flowing. And not everyone hit it, but I hit it. And it was remarkable. I, and even the instructor, you know, the, the guy who was running the program, Jerry Peterson, you know, remarked on, on the progress and how um, there were a few of us had reached that stage where we didn't have to think about the moves. They were just flowing out of us. And, and all that happened in 30 days because we did 300 hours of fighting in 30 days, which is pretty remarkable, you know. So I think if you have a, an intense immersion experience, you can greatly accelerate that learning process. That's one of the things I try to do at SealFit, actually, is to, to create that same accelerated learning environment that I experienced in the SEALs. That makes sense. I, I, I was thinking about, as you were saying that, uh, I was a wrestler growing up, and one of the things that they would say is that you would have to practice a move. I forget how many thousands of times in order to master it. And and what they were talking about, we literally would practice move. I'd practice move thousands of times before I could actually use it in a match. And even then, like I had to start thinking about it. Like I was trying to figure out the timing. And then there was a like these additional stages. And exactly what you said about kind of mastery, there was a stage where somebody would do something and I would respond instinctively to the stimulus and I would pick somebody up or I would take the leg or whatever. And I've seen this in other aspects of my life. And there's people who've taken it to a much further degree, whether it's the seals or I think about like Olympians or, or peak performance, like at Olympic level, like they're no longer thinking about what they're going to do. They're just reacting. And the question is who has the best reaction and a little bit of luck, but it's a matter of who has the best instincts at that level. Right. Cause you, you got to assume that they're physical you know, capacities are all fairly equal, you know what I mean, at the Olympian level or at the elite warrior level. So it becomes, like you said, who can let go of their mind, you know, and to be able to react instinctually, intuitively, and, and even bring their spirit to the game and just throw more energy into it than, you know, is, seems humanly possible. Yeah, or even the World Cup, right? We just had the World Cup, and you think, how many people in the world play soccer? Right. And then to be on that team in the finals and even being able to compete at the highest level within the highest level. What's cool is that, you know, I think one of the things that I, I'm trying to help people understand is, you know, you don't need to be an Olympic athlete to experience this. That, you know, and also that's number one. And number two is that this applies to just living life. Like if you, if you looked at your life like an Olympic sport, wouldn't you want to have, you know, instinctually perfect uh, choices, right, without having to think about it when, you know, when momentous things happen in your life, even the small things every day, you know, that happen, wouldn't you want to have, you know, instinctually, intuitively precise answers and um, shut up when you should shut up and to make the good decisions, go left, go right, you know, leap on this or hold back and just pause, 
And so those are things that can be taught, you know, and, 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 and we teach it through uh, this integrated training that I described earlier where we, you know, develop ourselves so that we can be, you know, like an intuitive warrior but apply it, not, you know, because we want to go hack somebody down with a, a long sword but because we want to become good people in service to our teams and in service to humanity. And, um, you know, you're, you're way more effective and worthwhile to humanity if you're if you're mentally tough emotionally resilient and connected with your spirit and leading with your heart than you are if you're sitting on your couch watching tv wondering you know what the government's going to do for you next you know what i mean it's funny it actually made me think of writing papers in school like on a, this is a personal story but when i was in school i never planned to go to college i ended up going to columbia my dad died in my early 20s and i moved out of the house when i was 18 but i got to a point where i was writing at first i struggled with my writing and in fact i had to go i went back to one of my high school teachers and said hey i went back to college my writing sucks um, is there anybody? <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, no, I didn't do that to him actually. Uh, but I, I asked, I asked him. I said, "Is there anybody that you would recommend that I go see who could potentially help me with my writing? I'll pay them whatever. I just this is really something that's really important to me." And he gave me a recommendation. It was this uh, junior high school English teacher who had hurt her leg and was on was on break from. She couldn't teach because she had injured herself. And so I started working with her. And I didn't have to work very long before I kind of developed the foundations and my school grades started getting better. My papers started getting better. But I got to a certain point in my writing where I realized that it didn't matter whether or not I spell checked my, my papers, whether I edited them, whether I took the extra time until I thought they were perfect, but they were good enough that I got A's on every paper. And so what happened was my minimum level of writing was so much higher than most of my peers. I was always in the top percentile, even when I was doing what I thought was substandard. I didn't like to do it, but it might not have been happy with the paper, but it was still good enough to, to get an A. And, uh, and, and not like it should be externally validated. I personally liked when the papers were perfect, but, <laughs> or I perceived them as being perfect. But the reason why I'm telling the story is because even if somebody, when we talk about proficiency, I think it's so much more important to be driven by our internal values, our internal commitments, our internal goals. But there is a level of proficiency where you just perform, even when you feel like you're not performing at your best, you're still performing at a, a rate that's a lot higher than most of the people around you. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do. And I think it's a great example, actually, because first of all, you have to choose your battles, right? You know, the, the marginal return for you to, to master and to be, to turn in the unbelievably perfect paper just wasn't there for you. Because, you know, in that domain, you needed to get A's and, and you were getting them. And so you, you, that you did enough. And so you can then reallocate precious time and mental energy on starting to master other skills, right? Because you want to be broad-based, balanced, uh, integrated human being and not just a good writer, you know what I mean? And so I think that's a really, you know, you just touch on just a critical point is that um, once we start to do this, you know, we take commitment, we commit to, um, to mastering, you know, those things that are important to us. And those are, you know, that changes as we develop in our lives and as we move toward our ultimate purpose and vision for what our life is meant to you know, accomplish, then, you know, you're going to, you're going to move through different skills and competencies that you need to master. And you're going to get to them to the level where you're, where you need to be and then move on. And then, you know, that skill will always be with you. Right. And like, I always will have the ability to be highly 
fit, right? Because I, I was a Navy SEAL and I, I have the ability to be able to concentrate very deeply for long periods of time on something because that's, that's what I did as a SEAL, right? And so I had multiple skills that I trained as a SEAL that I, I really don't need to train anymore. I just need to kind of keep them tuned up so I can allocate time and resources on developing other aspects of my, of my personal being, you know? It's funny that you said that my goal in school, it would depend on what school I was at. But before I was trying to transfer, I hadn't decided where I wanted to apply. And the first school I applied to was Columbia and I got in and decided that's where I want to go. But my goal, I wasn't on a plus or minus system. So my goal was 90% in every class. And if I did better than that, great. But at the very minimum, I wanted to get a 90% A in every class because I was trying to get A's because I wanted to go to a top school. But I also knew that if I got 100% on a test, that was great if it just happened. But it probably meant that I was over training. And then even at Columbia, my cumulative GPA was like 3.9 something. So um, I was kind of able, able to do that. But I think that's a really good point because we can't master everything. No. No, we can't, but we, got, you know, but we can choose what we need to master, and then you, know, you, you choose a, a narrow range of things to develop and master, and then when you hit your, your markers there, your milestones, then you kind of, like I said, move on. And that, you know, one kind of key point here that I try to teach or to uncover, I should say, with my students is to get very clear about you know, who they are and why they're here. Like, what is the, what is the internal vision that's guiding you? And so most, a lot of people look at me with this, this kind of blank stare. I'm like, what do you mean? I, I don't know. You know what I mean? I've got this job, and I, 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 they identify themselves as their role, their career, as a father. And, you know, so we have this long discussion, and it's kind of a spiritual discussion about the difference between, you know, your, your roles and who, you know, who you identify with, you know, who you think you are and versus who you truly are, which is, you know, a deep, you know, a deeply kind of spirit-slash-soul concept uh, you know, I call it the witness, actually. And so it's like this, this, the part of you that witnesses what you're doing in your life and how you go about, you know, and, and sits back with a smile on his face or sometimes a cringe or most of the time often a cringe. Yet um, if you were to slow down and to sit quietly over an extended period of time, then you could literally connect with that witness much deeper level and listen to it. And the witness will show you the vision for your life. And you will get the sense of, where you're supposed to go, the direction you're supposed to head, what you're, you know, what you're meant to accomplish. And, and that will unfold over time as you get older and as you start to lean into it, you know, as you start to actually take action toward that. that that's where synchronicity starts to happen and, and people start to line up to support you and all that. You know what I mean? And once you kind of get clear about that and you start to develop that internal vision of where you're supposed to go and you start heading in that direction, magic happens. But, you know, for a lot of people, this, this whole concept is just – Voodoo, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, what do you mean internal vision? You know, I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do or what my purpose is in life. And I think the only way to really uncover that is to just, you know, have an equal amount of silence and, and quiet time and non-doing as you do doing and action and busyness and thinking, you know what I mean? And, and that's really foreign to us here in the West. You know, we're just taught to do, be, you know, busy, you know, go you know conquer the world and unfortunately that that leads to you know a lot of problems you know because all that busyness is not balanced with quietness you know it's like the eastern concept of yin and yang you know for every amount of yang out there busyness you need to have an equal part of non-busyness non-doing quiet time and when you do that you know you open up to greater uh, self-inquiry much greater sense of what your values are and what's driving you 
um, you get to make better choices in those moments where, you know, those small choices that lead up to the big choices, like your choice to go to Columbia was offered to you because you made really good choices along the way with how to develop your mind and how to develop your skills and, you know, to be, you know, to use the intelligence that you were given, right? But it was those small choices that were more important than lining up which colleges you want to go to. You know what I mean? Ultimately, it was the difference between going to Columbia and going to you know City College in New York. Yeah, and I started at City College and transferred to Columbia because I never thought I was going to school. I mean, I absolutely love what you're saying here, and I feel like what you're saying is so important. This idea of balance and um, not only doing things so that you get real experience, stepping out, having that courage, going out, committing to the things that you want, having that courage to go after it, being okay that you feel uncomfortable, but also taking the time to to reflect and process the things that, or experiences or things that you're going through, the things that you're feeling. And I could see how this will help somebody evolve into not only a better person and for a lot of our listeners, a better man or a better leader. And so I know that your book, uh, The Seal Way, talks a lot about leadership. Can you pull some of these things together and, and talk about leadership and some of the ideas that you teach and how they can be used to develop people into better leaders? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my, my concept of leadership is very simple. First off, you know, it's a, it's a privilege. You know, it's not a position um, you know, you, you may call it a leadership position, but I know a lot of leadership positions that are filled with non-leaders. You know, they're just position holders. Um, so leadership to me is a, is a privilege. And so in order to de- develop or, or to have the right or the, the privilege to lead another human being or to another group of individuals, then we've got to have essentially their trust. In order to have their trust, we've got to be trustworthy. In order to be trustworthy, then we've got to have the character of someone who's trustworthy. And so leadership then ultimately becomes about developing the, the character to lead. So what are some of those character traits, you know, that lead to effective leadership where trust and trustworthiness is going to be there, that bond is going to be unbroken? Well, one is, you know, you got to be a risk taker and you've got to be willing to share risk with the team and show that you're willing to lead from the front and be bold, right? So you got to be a risk taker to some degree. At the same time, you've got to be a risk manager, meaning you, you're not going to do things that are going to unduly put your team at risk of loss of life, limb, or reputation, right? Uh, secondly, you've got to be a person of honor. And, you know, that's, that's powerful. You know, a lot of people talk about integrity, but I know people who had integrity who are just complete schmucks, right? Uh, so integrity must be infused with honor. An honor is that, you know, this idea that you are doing something that's going to be right, that's going to be righteous that people are going to think is good action in spite of the consequences to yourself. And we used to call it the New York Times test in the seals, right? Do it, you know, you, if you want to read about your actions in the New York Times, you better, you know, your actions had better be honorable. So whatever the reporter writes about is like, holy shit, this guy was amazing. He made this amazing decision and guess what? He'd lost his career because of it, but it was so honorable. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, McRaven, who is my sea daddy of SEAL Team 3, who went on to be the commander of all special ops. He's just retiring now to become the chancellor of, of the whole University of Texas um, system. So he, he's now a four-star admiral. But when I worked with him, he was a commander. And right before he, you know, took this job, he was at, at SEAL Team 6, or DevGroup. And, you know, he had he was fired from DevGroup because, you know, which is an elite SEAL team, right? And because he kind of had one of these moments where his honor, 
you know, came before his career. And he was trying to do something that was by regulations, and the guys and even the commanding officer were like, well, screw that. This is how we do things here. And he, and he wouldn't do it. And so he got fired. And, of course, you know, there was an investigation, and he was found to be in the right. And ultimately, you know, down the road, the, the commanding officer, Marcinko, got canned. But um, he, he, you know, he acted with honor. He went on to, you know, have an extraordinary career uh, because of this, this sense that, you know, honor and boldness and sharing the risk and being trustworthy were some of the keys to, to being a good leader. And so ultimately what it means, Chris, is to focus on developing yourself to being the best person that you can possibly be and master yourself at the levels we've talked about in this call and then turn your eyes toward your teammates in service. So don't do it for the career. You know, McRaven had a great career, and yes, he, he certainly was uh, ambitious, but all along the way, he served his teammates. Like, he bent over backwards to make sure that everyone was getting their needs met, that everyone was getting the training that they needed, that they were pushing the envelope, learning new things, that they had the equipment that they needed, the money they needed, that they were doing new and exciting and adventurous things. He took care of the team, and, and when there was a screw-up, he made sure that he covered down and and got all the answers, and, you know, if he made a mistake, then he would, you know, admit to it and try to rectify it. And so there's quite a bit involved in being a leader that is not just tactics but about character, and I think that's the most important part. This is wonderful. I mean, I absolutely love this call. As you were talking about some of these ideas, I was thinking about good and bad leadership, and I feel like I mean, we could look at that through so many different lenses, but – the one that popped into my, my mind's eye is that oftentimes with bad leaders, they're seeking validation or some type of external goal, or oftentimes they'll try to control their environments or try to control the people into following them. In my experience, the best leaders I've met are the type of people where the people around them will choose to follow them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, and when, when that trustworthiness and trust bond is there, then, then the, the leader has gone from what I call from the I sphere, from it's just about me to the, it, to the we sphere, where it's, it's really about us and we. We're, we're the team, and the leader's there just to really guide the team, provide the vision and the inspiration and the motivation, and, and then, you know, uh, lead from the front when necessary and serve and push from behind when necessary. And then also, and you kind of alluded to this, great, great leaders don't use the organization as a as a vehicle for um, manipulation or for control, they they try to remove the barriers of an organization so that it frees up and unlocks the the human potential bottled up in the individuals and in the teams. And that's a huge you know insight for a lot of leaders is that you know the the structure of the organization is meant to um, facilitate optimal performance, not get in the way. And bureaucratic organizations get so rigid and calcified that people then become slaves to those organizations and thinking that the rules and regulations, you know, regulations are you know, set in stone and you know, are gospel when really they're meant to be challenged and tested and pushed and prodded and broken all the time because they're really there just to help you know, the organization of human efforts. You know what I mean? So great leaders have a keen sense of how the I, we, and the it, which is what I call the organizational level, and this kind of unhappily influenced with you know integral theory and this this kind of this idea of leadership that you know leading well you have to have mastery over those three all three of those domains the I the we and the it and you have to be able to 
see from all three of those perspectives and to align all three to unlock the potential of all three. And when all three, I, the I and the we and the it, are, are you know, constantly changing and growing toward a higher level of self-organizing, then that's when you get the most incredible performance and um, also experience. And that's when, when work can become a place for true, you know, um, self-realization and, and, and growing as a human being. And I think it'd be really cool if everyone looked at work that way and that they were passionate about going to work and, and they looked at it as the primary place where they were growing as a human being. Because when, you, when you're with a team, that's where you really are challenged and to step up to a higher standard. And, you know, you can, you can be drawn to higher levels of growth and accomplishment by working with people who are very motivated and inspirational and holding you accountable. Same is true if you're working with a bunch of louses. You know, they could pull you down and make your life miserable or if you have a shitty leader. And so, you know, a great leader understands this and they, they unlock the potential of the individuals and of the team by, you know, organizing or aligning the organization and, and, and getting, you know, stupid rules and regulations that, that hinder performance out of the way and, and, you know, figuring out the intrinsic rewards, you know, that are going to drive the team. And that usually isn't about money. You know, it's things like uh, flex time and, and um, being able to work on, you know, really cool projects that are very meaningful to the, you know, the, to the individuals and the teams. You know, just look at Google and some of these other really cool entrepreneurial organizations that have, um, you know, just achieved extraordinary things. I'm about over on time. I got to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. If you're listening, you want to learn more about Mark, his books, his training programs, the different coaching and all the different things he does. I'm going to post some links on the Craft of Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so that you can learn about him more easily. Thank you again. Yeah, it's been, been a good time, uh, Chris, and uh, look forward to uh, chatting again sometime. It's dating coach Chris Lona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.